Okay, we're on, we're on this last chapter. This was a, chapter was a little bit different than what we've done through the rest of Hebrews, isn't it? Very different. Did you notice, did you notice all the verbs in this passage? Lots of verbs. A lot of them are in the present imperative um, verb tense. That means do these things. Absolutely do them. It's a command. What were some of your observations about the abundance of the verbs that were in this particular passage? Yeah. Uh huh. Kept seeing the repeated let us, let us. Yes. Do this. Absolutely. Thanks, June. Somebody else. They're words of action, they're words of exhortation, they would be words of instruction. Instruction in what? Exhortation in what? Well, beyond that even. We are to show brotherly love, but aren't all of these verbs, exhortation, instruction, and how we are to live, right? All of these are how how we are to live. They are not optional, but they are pastoral exhortations to us and how we live as new covenant believers. What, what has this author been doing throughout this book? Remember the audience. I put up here, remember who it was written to, that it was written to Hebrew Christians living in the first century who were very discouraged because they were experiencing persecution in a hostile world toward them. And so the temptation was great to take the path of least resistance and go back to, their Judea, to the Judaism, their roots, and practice Judaism because it was still worshiping Yahweh, was still worshiping God, and it would get them out from under the pressure. But this author is writing to exhort them, and as he does that, what does he want them to know? What does he want them to remember? What have we learned in these? We've done 10 weeks last semester, this in 20 weeks, what have we learned from Hebrews? What are some of the high points? We've, we, he's exhorted with, to persevere so that you can endure. What are the truths that help me persevere and help me endure? Huh? Who Jesus is, and you said what? And we have a better covenant. He has laid out systematically how Jesus is better than anyone or any, anything they would turn to. He is the son. He is better than Moses. He is better than Aaron. He is a better priesthood. He is better than the angels. He is a perfect high priest who sits at the right hand of the Father who has inaugurated a new covenant for us that is better than the old covenant. Yes, June. Right, he's, okay, did you hear June? He's exhorting us to the eternal things, because nothing else matters. It is all eternal. I mean, it's all temporary, temporary, not eternal. Exhorting us to the eternal things. So he's trying to refocus them on the truth of who Jesus is and the privileges and the benefits they have under the new covenant. And now he comes with these 
um, one after the other after the other, imperative verbs saying this is now how you live. So if we look at this, basically what he's saying is this whole chapter, if I could summarize it, would be um, how we live, how we live as New Covenant believers. This is what the church is supposed to look like. This is what you, as new covenant people, should look like. This is how you live. Now, I threw out that question on chapter 2 and about the, all the practical exhortations. And this is a good one to discuss. Do you generally prefer theological portions of the New Testament, or do you prefer the practical? Which is more important? Okay, Ron, you said both? Okay. They're both important? If you miss the theological implications, it becomes a checklist. Okay. Did you hear, Lynn? If you miss the theological portions, then it becomes a checklist. Other thoughts? Yes, he is. He does care about every aspect of our life. That's part of living as a new covenant believer, is it should permeate every, the, every inch of who we are in all of our relationships. It is not just about getting my ticket to heaven and forgiveness of sins and a clear conscience. Other thoughts? Why is theology so important? Yes, June. Okay. We answer to God, yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. So, you know, Lynn made the con- Yeah, go ahead, Kim. Oh, that was really good. Did you all hear her? I don't know if I can repeat you, but that was excellent. They're intertwined. Help me hear how you said it. They're intertwined, and the, and the theological is, is, is the why. It's the explanation. It's the base. It is what the living flows out of. I, 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 if anything, if, I, if you made me choose which is more important, I'd say the theological is more important. Because that's the one you can't do without. Well, you can't do without either one of them. You cannot. They're totally intertwined. But I don't think you really know how to put into practice the practical without the theological. Why, why am I living this way? Why do I need to let brotherly love continue? Why do I show hospitality to strangers? Why do I, why do I honor marriage 
if I don't have the theological basis for these exhortations and these commands for how to live. Brenda, you were going to say something. Well, like I said, they're both equally important, but the order needs to go theological. Absolutely. Did you hear? They're equally important, but I'm going to rephrase that. Order matters. Yeah. Order matters. You need the theological before the practical. Try living the practical without, try living these exhortations without the theological, and it becomes, like Lynn Harvey said, a checklist, or I would say it becomes a bondage because you're trying to do it out of your flesh. Do you all agree with that? But when I understand who Christ is and what he has done for me, and I understand what all the theological truths behind these exhortations, there's motivation to want to live this way. It flows forth because now I know why. Okay, other thoughts, comments? Okay, let's begin to, um, let's begin to unpack them then a little bit. And, and, and I want you to keep with each of these in focus. I want to repeat it. This is how we live as New Covenant believers. Regardless of the culture and the society in which you live, because think about our own culture. Think about their culture. They're experiencing persecution and hostility simply because they are followers of Jesus Christ. What similarities are there to today? We have to look at these in the light of their world, what was going on in the first century, before we look at how, what does this mean to me? But are there similarities? And what are they? Are we living in an increasingly hostile environment toward Christianity? Okay. Yeah, we are, aren't we? Our culture is changing. Our, our, the morality is changing. Things ha- are changing. It's like, for example, with gay marriage that I never would have dreamed would happen in my lifetime, that that would become the standard and the legality of the day. So the the culture is shifting, and it has shifted a lot, just even in the last four or five years. I I am amazed at how much it has shifted in the attitudes and the norms and the practices and what is considered acceptable behavior has shifted and changed. So to stand for truth is getting a little trickier, isn't it? It's getting harder. It's getting... It's getting much trickier. How do we do that? That's not a question in your homework, but how do we do that? Do you know, or are you, just, or are you thinking, I have no idea how we do that? I think we do it Okay. We do it with love. Somebody said something over here. We stand on the word. We don't compromise the truth, do we? Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, other thoughts? How do we do it? How do we balance that trickiness of I'm going to not compromise the truths of everything I've learned, not only in Hebrews but elsewhere in Scripture, about what is true, what is the standard in God's eyes, and not compromise? How do I do that?
Well, that would be the extreme of the wrong way. <laughs> yes, yes. We go ahead. So as we unpack all these, let me, let me say this. Let me add this. What you're saying is correct, but let me add these things to it. We do it with mercy and with grace. Uh, let me read you this one quote I ran across this week from um, Russell Moore. And I like what he says. Now listen, let me say it twice because it took me, I, I heard it and then I had to think about it a minute. But I'm a little slow. We must speak Christian truths, but we must speak with a Christian accent. Does that make sense? We must speak Christian truths, but we must speak with a Christian accent. Think about that. I think about um, Ruthie Laffey here at church, and she's originally from England, and when she speaks, she has a very British accent, which tells me she's from, her roots are in, in England. So the accent is, it identifies, I'm, I'm of this world. I'm of this world that is a follower of Christ. I have that accent. People meet me and know I have been with him, that he has affected my life. We do it, but we do it with truth and with grace. We say what Jesus says with mercy and with an invitation to a new life. I, I like to listen to Ravi Zacharias, if you've ever heard him. Him, my goodness, he is amazing. The way he can articulate truth to people and be, do it with such grace and such mercy and talk about that invitation of life, whether they accept it or not, it's out there just begging at them, the way, the demeanor that he has and the way he's able to do it is phenomenal. If you've not ever listened to him, just YouTube, Ravi Zacharias, there's lots of little clips on there of him. He goes around to different university campuses and other places and addresses different um, theological topics and then always opens at the end for questions. He was in um, Edmond a couple years ago, so I got to go and hear him. It was really good. He's really good. Do we have some of his tapes in the church library? Okay. He's, he, is, he is phenomenal. He really, really is phenomenal. Okay, so let's look at this. What's the first thing? If we start looking at what, how do we live as New Covenant believers? What is the church to be? What are we to look like? What's the very first thing you encounter in this chapter? What's number one? What kind of love? Brotherly love. So we, we love people. That is characteristic of who we are, that we love people. In the church corporate life, love matters above all else. Now, is this just a warm, fuzzy love? No, because what flows out, what he starts with this, let brotherly love continue. 
how is that the basis for everything else he's going to say? Yeah, it's how we treat others. It's how we, we interact, how we live in relationship. It's with, with brotherly love. This is Philadelphia, by the way, not agape, which is interesting, but it is brotherly love. What are some of the challenges, though, of living with brotherly love? Going to Walmart on the first of the month. Going to Walmart on the first of the month, yes. <laughs> yeah, there's a challenge. Yeah. It, it is definitely not, let's keep our original context first. It's brotherly love within the community of each other. But yes, it does flow out at Walmart or with the irritating bank guy I had yesterday on the phone that I've got to talk to again today. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to, especially when they're removed on the phone, you're not seeing a face and they're not doing what you want them to do. Um, it's, that's where, that, where the practice of love really comes out. Are we going to be identified as a people of love and inclusive? We ought to be, I like what one author said, we should be uh, the most loving, inclusive community the church should be. Absolutely. We are loving people. We are also what? What does it say right after that? We are, we are hospitable people. Why is that important? Why would that have been important in their world? Do you know? Why was hospitality such an important thing? And the Bible holds, Scripture holds hospitality in really high esteem. This is not the first time. You can go to Romans 12, 13 and 1 Peter 4, 9 about practicing hospitality. It's even one of the characteristics of the elders. They would be hospitable. There was no holiday in. No Skirvin Hilton. No days in. There were inns, but they were generally not safe places to stay. So it was incumbent upon the people, if someone was traveling, to take them in to your home so that they would have a safe place to be. Why is it important for us today to be hospitable to each other within the community and outside the community of believers? Why is it important as New Covenant believers, that we are hospitable people. Okay, it's how you get to know people, Ron. Yes, do y'all hear? Ron's hard to hear, but it's an obvious way to reflect love, to welcome people. Who, who is our prime ex- example of practicing hospitality? With other people. Hmm? Mary, and Mary and Martha, before them. Not in his home, but who, did, who practiced hospitality? What, what do we tend to do? Let, let me back up. What do we tend to do? We hang out with people like us, don't we? What is this calling us to do? Hang out with strangers. Hang out with people not like us. Who did that? Jesus. Who did he hang out with? Pharisees, tax collectors, sinners. He went to the people not like him so that he could offer that, that love and grace and mercy and invitation to a better life. So if all we're doing is hanging out with those like us, 
then are we truly reflecting and living as New Covenant believers? That's a challenge because I know some of us that it gets a little bit out of our comfort zone to maybe invite someone to lunch or have someone over to dinner or just, hey, we're going to lunch after church. You want to come join us? It doesn't mean you have to be Martha Stewart in your home at all. It does. That is not what we're talking about here. It's, it's more of an attitude of inclusiveness that even with people that are not like me, I will extend grace and mercy and love in an atmosphere of brotherly love with them, within my community and outside. Does that make sense? Okay. What next? How do, how, how do we live as New Covenant believers? Okay. Visit prisoners. You don't do that? Nope. Nope, it's uncomfortable. Has anybody ever done it? Have everybody been in a prison? It's, it's kind of, it is scary. It is. Could we make that broader, though? Yes. How? How could? Well, there are a lot of people who are held prisoner by things that are not bars, um, whether it's depression, whether it's that they are Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good. Karen? Well, and, you know, if you don't want to go there, you can support prison ministries. Yes. You can buy Bibles for them. And, yes. You know, whatever. For them, for them in this day, remember our first century contacts, it was critical that they remember the prisoners and go and visit them because prisons didn't provide food. If they were going to survive, someone had to bring them food. And, and bedding and just basic necessities to survive. It, when we've gone down to Mexico, Jim, you'll remember this, and we go into the, the hospital, the hospital doesn't provide food for the patients. It's in, the family has to bring food. And the, the nursing staff's very minimal. It's the family that sits by their bedside and takes care of them. It takes, you know, bathes them and takes care of their needs. So if no one's coming and taking care of you, you're, you're really in a, in a difficult position. I like the broader term. That's their context. Yes, we should. We can remember the prisoners. We can remember the people by praying for those that are in prison for their faith and other parts of the world. But I, like, I love what you said, um, Teresa. Remember the forgotten. I read something in one of the commentaries uh, quoting, uh, he was quoting a book, uh, a, a woman that had reached, you know, had gotten old and how lonely she was and the pain the just the, the pain of loneliness and how hard the nights and the weekends were because the, the, your, your friends are gone and family's not coming and you can't get out. And so I, I love what you said, Teresa. There's, a diff, there are prison, there's prisoners beyond the bars of, of the prison. Yeah. To those who can't be in church. And so they literally get to go and break bread with someone who can't be there. We used to do that. Jim, does our church still do that? We used to. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know. Yeah. I thought, I don't know, to me, I just thought that was. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't, I don't think it was as calling 
ourselves. Yes. We need to remember the prisoners. That doesn't mean, that means we, you know, when I was sick, you helped me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And so. To the least of these, you did it unto me. It's hard. And yes. That. That's still what we're called to do. Yes. Yes. Number Absolutely. Uh huh. Oh, I like that. Did you hear her? She said, uh, Courtney said, I think of number two and number three is loving the unlovables. People are just, it's hard to love them. It's hard to love them. It doesn't mean we're not called to love them. Yeah. Yeah. It is hard to love them. I agree with both of you all completely. That's what he's called. That's what new covenant believing is. That's living as new covenant believers because you know what? We're not very, in God's eyes, what were we? Dead in our trespasses and sins and not very lovable. And he died for us. He reached out to us and died to us. How could we not do the same for somebody else? Right? Okay. What's next? Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. So, as New Covenant believers, we honor marriage. Why do we honor marriage? We could do a whole lesson on this, couldn't we? Why do we honor marriage? Besides God said do so. <laughs> Why? What does it mean to honor it? Why do I honor it? What are, the, what are the scriptural truths about marriage? It's a testimony to others? Okay. It is a... It is a covenant relationship similar to ours with, with him. It is both spiritual and it is both physical. It's a spiritual mystery. It's, it's displaying the mystery of Christ in the relationship that we have with him. So we honor it. It is an ordinance that God instituted. It is holy. It is precious. It is something that he has given us to guard and to keep and to protect. Do you all agree? So we need to defend it as, as those things. Now, think again back into this world. Uh, would, wouldn't our temptation at this point to be to think, wow, things have really changed, haven't they? Not much is new under the sun. Chastity was, a, was really not a common-held concept in, in the Roman world. In fact, it was expected that if, when you got married, you had someone out on the side. And sexual immorality is rampant. There's nothing new under the sun. There really isn't. There was homosexuality. They didn't, I know, and there was a lot of gayness that went on. I don't think they um, had legally gay marriage, but it happened. It wasn't underground in this world. There's a lot of things that were going on. But how is our society, our culture, the culture in which we live, we've already talked about a little bit this morning, how are we dishonoring marriage? How's marriage being dishonored? I think there's just such a focus on uh, you, you know, you deserve to be treated better. Uh-huh. You deserve this. This, you know, this isn't fair. And it's such a focus on yourself, and you can buy into that. Right. Right. Yeah, it's about my personal happiness, what is best for me, what fulfills me, not what the institution is, that it's a mirror and reflection of the covenant relationship we have with God and something to be honored and kept. 
and display of, of agape love and in a place where we can be made holy. What if the, per like what Gary Thomas says, what if the purpose of marriage is not to make us happy, but to make us holy? And I think that that's very true. And we dishonor it by pursuing happiness at all costs, and therefore we just divorce and get out when it's not making us happy, right? What other ways is it dishonored? Yeah. Yes. And they are saying that, as long as love lasts, definitely. Yeah, not till death. Oh, it is. Watch some of these TLC, like, say yes to the dress, when at the end they show the, the wedding and giving the vows. That, that you hear that a lot. You know, any of you women, if you've ever watched that, you, you need to, sometimes you need to watch these shows, even if you don't like them, just to see what the world is doing. Do you know what I'm saying? Anybody watch House Hunters? What's the predominant demographic of married on house hunters? Gay couples. Male gay couples. If you watch only house hunters, you would think about 50% of all married people in the United States are gay men. And I like to watch house hunters because I'm a voyeur and I want to see in the houses in these other cities that look different than what they look like here in Stillwater. But, yeah, but anyway, um, so honor, we, we don't honor marriage. How do, you know, so again, it gets back to what I was saying in the very beginning. How do we honor marriage? How do we speak truth in a culture that is increasingly anti-marriage, anti-heterosexual marriage, where it is increasingly difficult to speak out against gay marriage? It's hard, isn't it? It's tricky. It's very tricky. It's very difficult to do. And, and, and we've talked about this in here before, and when you have Christian leaders coming out in support of gay marriage. There was a church down in Dallas recently where they've embraced it. Jen Hatmaker, um, somebody else I've heard of. I mean, they're, they're dropping like flies where it's getting harder to stand up and say, this is not God's design. He designed it as a man and a woman for until death do us part. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They do. Mm hmm. What do you do? And you can read varying opinions. You know, I had someone recently ask me about, you know, they had a family member. He finally, you know, just succumbed to his same-sex attraction and married um, an, another man. And 
what, what do they do with that? And I said, well, I can give you all kinds of resources, and you can read opinions, and this, this particular theologian will say, here, you do this, and this one will say, you do this, and I don't know what the answer is. It's hard. It is the world we live in. It is absolutely the world we live in. Uh huh. I don't think so, personally, but, yeah. Yeah, Becky. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, you don't do that. No. And, and, and it's different, and, we're, and we could stay on this till we're done, and I want to get through these other points, but I, I think it's different when if you're dealing with people who are professing to be believers versus people who are not making any profession of being a believer. Those are two different things and how you deal with it, how you approach it. Those are completely different. Because someone professing to be a believer living in immorality is committing sin. Unbelievers are just being unbelievers. They need Jesus first before confrontation about their sin. Does that make sense? They just need the they need the gospel first. Yes, Kim. It is. It is a fine line. Yes, it is. It is. And we're not answering every question everybody has on this topic today. So let's let's move forward. Um, the next thing we see is um, about us. How do, how do we live? How do we as new covenant believers live? How do we live? Okay, so I'm going to put that in in our vernacular for today, and that is we reject materialism, because that's a little more of a problem for us than it was for them, isn't it? Because what happens from these references you looked up? What happens when the love of money is your focus? What did First Timothy tell you? It is the root. It is the root of all evil. It is a snare. It is a temptation. It'll take you down. It's what Teresa? It's an idol. Yes, it is an idol. We are bombarded with materialism. And it makes it more difficult to live as a New Covenant believer with the amount of materialism that is it, it permeates every inch of our lives. It's on the billboards. It's, it's everywhere we walk. It's on TV. It's on the radio. It, it's everywhere. So that's a real challenge. That's more, I think that's more of a challenge for us than it ever was for them. How do, how do we reject this? And I think he, he gives us, he's going to give us the answer. But what is he, what's the next thing? First of all, did you look at those scripture references when, we dis, when discussing the love of money? What does he say? He says, be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man 
do to me. Two Old Testament quotations, one from Deuteronomy, one from Psalm 118.6. Did anybody look up Deuteronomy 31.6 and notice the context? Why would he say, I will never leave you nor forsake you in the context of money? What's happening in Deuteronomy? This is Moses. As he's coming to the end of his life and is going to pass the baton to Joshua, Joshua is the one that now that they've, uh, when they finish their wandering in the wilderness, is going to take them in to the land, to the promised land. And when they go into the land, there's going to be people bigger and mightier and stronger than them. And God is saying, I will never leave you or forsake you. Be strong and be courageous because I'm with you and you will be able to overcome these people because I am behind you and this is what I've asked you to do. And then when we say we can confidently say the Lord is my helper, I will not fear what can man do to me, how are those tying to the love of money? And contentment. Did you think about that? It's trusting God. It is, isn't it? It's just as simple as that. Who am I going to trust to take care of me? If my, if my focus is so much on, some of it's the lust of the flesh and the materialism, but a lot of it is I'm not trusting God. I've got to get all this stuff for me. I've got to pad my bank account because I'm not trusting him, that he will never leave me or forsake me, that he is my, my helper. Yeah. 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 See, I would add to this number six, um, right? You know, when we say we reject uh, materialism, that we live confidently. Do you all see that in verse, is it six? For he, um, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? So regardless of um, what persecution is coming at us, regardless of the lack of material things, we can, say, we can live confidently because we know he, he has us. He's got my back. He's going to take care of me. Yes? I think that's good, Tony. I do. Okay. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome. Consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. And that consider means look again. And I put that question in there, which we won't stop to talk about. But think about the people whose lives you can imitate. Look for them. Watch them. Model them. They're wonderful examples. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have benefited those devoted to them. Now look at verse 8. That's a key verse, I think, of this whole 
chapter, which number one, there is no verb in the Greek. It's not Jesus Christ is. It's just Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. How do we live as new covenant believers? How do we live in the trickiness of a culture that is shifting greatly away from our values and toward hostility, toward what we know is the truth? We remember Jesus, is, his, his truth is the same today as it was. It has not changed. He has not changed his view of man. He has not changed his view of marriage. He has not changed his um, uh, stand on any truth. He is still the, the perfect high priest. Nothing about him has changed. He is exactly as he was, as he is, and as he will be. And that is the rock of foundation that we stand on. And that's why we need theology, to know what we're standing on. What are the truths we're standing on about him? That is, our, that is our foundation, and that's where we need to go. Okay, look at verse 11, talking about the bodies of the animals who are brought, whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin and burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the camp in order to sanctify the people through his blood. Therefore, let us what? Let us do what? Go outside to the camp. So what do we do as New Covenant believers? We live outside the camp. Why? Who's there? Who's outside the camp? Number one, do you know what this means, outside the camp? When they did a sin offering, and it was all burned, what was left over was taken outside the camp. On the Day of Atonement, the goat that was let go was let go outside of the camp. The whole picture of the camp, you know, the Israelites camped together. Inside the camp was community. Inside the camp was holy. Outside the camp was to be excommunicated. Outside the camp was unholy, unclean. Yet Jesus is taken outside the camp and treated as despised and unclean and unholy because he was a sin offering. Do you get that? So why do we go? What is it? Why do we go outside the camp? And what does that mean to live outside the camp? We endure what he did. Look in verse 13. Therefore, let us pay attention to this. This is where words get important. Let us go where? No, first to, to him. We go to him, not for him. That's important. We go to him. We go where he is. And where, where did he live? He lived in a world that hated him that despised him, that wanted him dead. So when I live outside the camp, I'm going to him. I'm going where he is. And what kind of life does that call me to? You had some scripture references here. What kind of life does that call me to? Did you look those scriptures up? What does it mean to live outside the camp?
Yeah. Take up your cross and follow me. You don't take up your cross and follow me. What else does it say? You don't hate father and uh, mother. You don't love them more than me. You love me first. And you follow me to a world where you may be despised and you may experience shame and difficulty because that's where I am. And that's where you, that's where you have intimacy with me and, and sharing in the fellowship of my sufferings. So go outside the camp. It's where it's uncomfortable. It's where it's not fun. It's, it's outside. It's what? Somebody said something over here. Hmm? Yeah. It's, it's out of the world. It may mean not fitting in, not being a part of the group, because we live differently. What, Lynn? We're not of this world. We have, yeah, we are strangers and aliens. We are looking. We live in a foreign land in a foreign city, and we are looking forward. What do we learn about all those people of faith in chapter 11? We're looking forward for that eternal city, that eternal home, because we're not there yet. We are, all, we are already there in that we are a part of the kingdom, but we are not there yet. So that is, that is living outside the camp. Okay. Then, how are we to live? After We live outside the camp. We don't offer sacrifices within the camp. What kind of sacrifices do we offer? Praise. Praise. So we are a thankful. We are a thankful people. We are a people of gratitude. We are a people that offer praise for what God has done and praise to him. We express that gratitude. And what else do we do? What goes right along with that? Right after that, we uh, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name and whatever kind of sacrifices do we make that are pleasing to him. Okay, we, we don't neglect to do good and share what we have with others. We share our stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. 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 So we share our stuff, and then what else do we do right after that? In verse 17. Okay. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? Because they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account to you. Did anybody look up the word obey? Because this is interesting. Okay. It means, it does when you think of obey, what do you think of? Do what you're told, right? I've given you command, now, now do it. That's not what this word is. It's, no, it means, it means to be convinced, confident, Persuaded. I thought that was so interesting. I just happened upon that because I didn't necessarily. It's the same word used in 2.13, 6.9, and 13.18 in Hebrews. It's used about 52 times. And the majority of the time it's translated convinced, confident, persuaded. So what he's saying is have confidence in your leaders. I love that. So 
have confidence in your leaders and submit to them because they watch over our souls. They are responsible for us. Jim, are you going to talk about that any, or do you have any comments? Because you, you're our leader. <laughs> On verse 17, are you with us? Okay. 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 I like what one pastor said. He said, give them the benefit of the doubt. I really like, give them the benefit of the doubt. As the people that are, they have the greater responsibility. But give them the benefit of the doubt and be convinced. You like that as a leader? Okay. Right. And then, and pray for them. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Pray for them. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. So that, le- that brings us to that question. What, how do we make it difficult for leaders to lead? All kinds of ways. All kinds of ways. <laughs> Complaining. Mm-hmm. Demanding our own way. Okay. So have confidence, submit to them, pray for them. There's your top ten, your ten list for how we live as New Covenant believers. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good Everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. What a moving benediction, which brings this study to a close, which leads me to ask the questions. How, what has, how has Hebrews, how has this study changed you? What has stood out the most to you as you've studied this, this book? Yeah, Scott. It's grace is free. We don't earn it. It's a gift. It's just given to us. Absolutely, great thought, Scott. Yeah. What is it? What else? Somebody else, what has stood out to you as you walked through this book? How has it changed you? How has it encouraged you? Is there a particular verse that you go, wow, this one, this one grabbed my heart? Yes. In this chapter? And what is, okay. Yeah. Like, you know, you talk about going to Walmart. Mm-hmm. Well, instead of scowling at the person who's walking the aisle, mm-hmm. smile and say, Excuse yeah. me, maybe that's the only smile I get all day. Right. It's where the rubber hits the road, isn't it, at Walmart? <laughs> or the bank. Or the bank. 
or later today, Stillwater Medical Center. And the little bill I got yesterday, that'll be another one. Yeah. I'm not going to Walmart. I'm just going to deal with the bank and Stillwater Medical Center today. <laughs> yeah. And another difficult realtor in town. So that emails us and text every single day till we get this thing closed on Thursday. <laughs> yeah. Other thoughts? Yes, June. Can you all hear? She said this study impacted her life more than any other she's taken. It has brought home the faithfulness of God. Yeah. Leave you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Can I share with you my number one takeaway? It might surprise you. Let us lay aside everything, every hindrance that so easily entangles. The, the hindrances in 12.1, fixing our eyes on Jesus. That chapter more than anything grabbed my heart and said, you know what, Nancy? These things here have been distracting you. And you need to get some blinders on like that horse. Patty knows what I'm talking about. And focus this way. If you really want to glorify me. That was it for me more than anything in this particular um, study. Uh huh. Yes, the race set before me. It's how I run in a way that is really glorifying to him. And I run well. And it's not hard. When I'm focusing on other things, it gets really hard. And it's much easier just to focus on him. Okay. Anybody else want to share? It's your last opportunity. Yes, June. Did you hear she has boldness now to speak about Jesus? Even in the surgical room yesterday, she told him about Jesus. Yeah, does give you boldness. Thank you all so much. This has been fun, a fun journey, and um, it is a, a also, it's a responsibility on my part, but it is a joy and a delight, and you all make it fun. Thank you very much. So let's take a break, and we'll hear Jim for the last time this semester as well. Okay, let's jump into our final time. Uh, going over how letters end. And so what I would like to do is, um, first of all, point out this. The way that the book of Hebrews ends is significantly different than almost all of Paul's letters. Nowhere else does Paul end with, uh, well, I shouldn't say nowhere. Very seldom does Paul end like this in his letters. Is If you go back and think through, uh, well, probably the one that is most famous is Romans. 16, where it's like, say bye to so-and-so and say hi to so-and-so and peace out, word to your mother, I love you guys, be good, you know. Uh, it doesn't really go into the specifics. Um, a lot of that material is going back in there. Yes? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't think Paul did, to be honest with you. 
I don't think Paul did. And that's one of the reasons why is the closing is not totally different. I mean, and I want to kind of show you a couple of cases where it seems to happen. Paul, um, for the most part, seems to blend in a lot of these statements that he gives, or that the Hebrew writer gives us here at the end. The Apostle Paul, for the most part, seems to kind of put it in the middle of the book. Say, the book of Ephesians is a great example. Uh, beginning in chapter 4, the Apostle Paul starts giving what is known as hortatory or uh, the commands or the imperatives in the text. And so that is where it begins. And he, then in chapter 5, husbands love your wives, wives love your husbands, masters, slaves. He goes through all this stuff. Six, parents. And then he describes stuff. And at the very end, hey, Tychicus says hi, say hi to Mark. You know, that, that's kind of how it usually, uh, Paul's letters do it. And I, but I want to look at a couple of examples where it's a little bit different. And I want us to just think about this because I, th I think it's really interesting. I'll go back, and for those of you that have to hear me a lot, I just feel so sorry for you. Um, now you know what Andrea feels like all the time. It's miserable. I, the, I, I say to her, I said to her a little recently when I was going over a study, she must have heard me do a million times. Uh, there's a special place for her in heaven. Um, not for why, what you think, which is put up with me, but no, to put up with the same teaching. Over and over and over again, it's, it's, just, it's crazy. But um, if you think about what it would have been like for the Apostle Paul or whoever to come to a town and to share the gospel with some people and spend a matter of weeks, maybe even months, sharing the gospel and sharing the gospel and sharing the gospel and then packing up and leaving and thinking they got it. How many of you have been following Christ for longer than 10 years and you feel like there's so much more you need to know? Anybody else? And how many of you have Bibles too, right? We, right? I mean, it's when I think about that, it's like I've got all of this and I can just go read it. Like imagine if you didn't have Bibles and imagine if, um, like imagine if I and, and some of the ministerial staff showed up, you know, for like four months and we just talked to you guys about Jesus and then said, I think you got it from here. What would happen to us? Like, and think about it, like generationally, what happens to the next generation? I mean, honestly, the Holy Spirit has to be real. I don't know, I don't know another way in which, in which there can be unity within the body, in which there can be conformity of doctrine, like apart from the Spirit. And that's why the Bible seems like such an incredible gift to me. Um, it's one of the reasons why I want to hold on to it so tightly is because without it, Man, I'm left trying to figure out everything on my own. I'm left trying to figure out, well, what do I do with this guy on the street who says he has a need? I don't know what to I wonder what I should do. But the Bible gives us me an answer of what to do. How, how do I treat my wife? Because, oh, she makes me so mad sometimes. Anybody else? The Bible gives me an answer to that. So the Bible offers these kinds of things, and sometimes we think that's all it is, but the more that we begin to look at the Bible, the more that we find out a lot of it's talking about like what Jesus did for us. A lot of it is written, and, and this is kind of what I want you to, to, to at least be aware of. Um, Nancy and I and, and Brenda have talked about it enough, that you have the indicative and the imperative. The great book that, is, that kind of gives a very clear understanding of this is the book of Ephesians. Six chapters, chapters one through three, 
indicative. Chapters 4 through 6, imperative. Not totally exclusive, but, but yeah. So this is, and, and what, I, what, I, what I keep coming back to, and I remember when I first learned this, I thought, wow, like this is huge. Like this shapes everything about my life. So indicative, for those of you that don't remember English, right? You're sitting there going, who's going to ask? Who's going to ask? Who's going to ask? The indicative are statements of fact. Jesus died for you. Like God loves you. That's just an indicative statement. Um, Jim was born in Canada. That's an indicative. Jim and Andrea are married. That's an indicative. And so when you read the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters are just indicatives. This is what God has done. This is what God has done in Christ. This is what the Holy Spirit does. This is what you have. Just stating a fact. Over and over and over and over again. Over and over and over again. Fact, 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 fact. Then it says, kind of, a, you know, if you can let me use this word, therefore, it's not really in verse chapter 4, verse 1, but then all of a sudden it starts saying, so then let us be patient and kind with one another. Let us put off all bitterness and rivalry. Let us forgive one another like Christ has forgiven us. That's all based on the fact that in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul said to the Ephesians, Hey, listen, God has made two one, destroying the hostility, the wall between us. And now we are one. That's all he says. We're just one. So well, how, well, what do we do now that we realize that we're one? Oh, that's easy. We, we get rid of all bitterness and anger and strife. Because why? Because of the indicative. And, and this is where I, f- I felt really convicted and where it's really helped me in a lot of areas of life. So for those of you that are going, I'm a new parent, I want application. Or I'm a new grandparent, I want application. Or I'm a parent that screwed up my kids and now I want application, which we're all in that boat in some degree, I believe. Is that I, I've spent a lot of time with my kids or even in ministry, and I, you know, I don't have to be preaching to do this. My buddies... Just giving imperatives. You know what you should do? My, my dad, my dad's, my dad, this is my dad's statement. My dad loves to say this. You know what you'd do if you were smart? <laughs> he says that all the time. You know what you'd do if you were smart? <laughs> and I laugh so hard. You, you get what he's saying, though, right? He's, I'm not smart. But if I was smart, you know what you'd do? You know what you'd do? That's kind of how he operates. And sometimes all we do is give the imperatives. Matthew, you really need to wait until you're married to have sex. Matthew, you really need to try hard at school and get good grades. Matthew, you need to. And so we give these reasons, or we, or we give these commands, we give these imperatives. Right? And, and it's a little bit of the problem, well, why should I? Because I said so. So there's the indicative, because I said so. Maybe it's not a very good indicative. Um, Drew Moss was the first one, I believe, to use this statement here. I was so mad he stole it from me because he took it from somebody else, and I just, at least around us, I wanted to have the statement. I don't know if you guys remember him doing this in a sermon. The more we tell other believers, particularly Christians, right? So the more we tell believers, the more we tell one another who we are in Christ, the less we have to really tell them what to do. The more I tell you who you are, the less I have to tell you what to do. Um, you are a beautiful creature. You are um, the apple of God's eye. You are forgiven. Like, you are set apart for a purpose. Oh, really? Because I was just going to go have sex with, like, three people just kind of randomly. 
You are a new creation. Oh, really? Because I was actually going to go exploit my buddy and try to see if I could stick him for this bill because I really don't want to pay for it. And the more that we have, and we've done this, I think the church has been guilty of imperative preaching. This is what you need to go do. 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 Or don't do, or don't, yeah, really, which is the same thing, right? Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. But why? And what's very interesting, and this is the beauty of it, is some of you are going, that's right, we really do need to know the reason why. What, what we have bypassed as a, as a church, and I, I believe this is an old problem, is that we then, instead of going back to the indicative, because Paul's indicative is God and his plan. That's Paul's indicative, right? But what we have actually done for practical purposes is that we have, instead of God and his plan, we have put us and our choice. We've replaced the two, right? So why should Matthew wait until marriage? Well, because, son, you don't want to have a baby out of wedlock, do you? Like, son, that could really impede your educational future. Like, you do know that if you have sex with eight girls, you could get a six, an STD. You know you could get that. You don't want that. Who wants that? Who wants a sexually transmitted disease? Anybody want one? You don't want one. Sounds crazy. So you know what? You need to, and so we become very um, utilitarian in our approach to things, don't we? And that's a, that's a problem, actually, because then all we have to do is solve the problems. What's the problem? Babies and, and, and diseases? Hey, I, I think we can fix this. And actually, so we don't have to learn to say no to ourselves. We can actually continue to say yes to ourselves, and if... You know, something happens, we'll just get rid of it. And then if, you know, something happens to my body, the doctor will help me get rid of that. So I can continue my irresponsible behavior, my sinful behavior, free of consequences. Right? And by the way, this is where a lot of us, and not just with sex, but in so many areas of our lives, it's how can we, when we don't base everything on the indicative, Christ died for you, God united us, God has set us free from sin. When we don't do that and we just sell our children alternative plans, which then are just centered about them, we are really, really good at figuring out a way to somehow keep our sin and try to do the best that we can to jettison the consequences. And that's the problem. And so the one thing that I find very interesting about this book is this book, not, 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 not quite like the book of, um, uh, of Ephesians, but this book has almost, say, for example, like many, 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 many chapters of the indicative describing what God has done and what God's word is and who Jesus Christ is and how he's so much better, right? We've seen that for a long, long period of time. And then here in chapter 13, the writer, Paul maybe, maybe Apollos, maybe Luke, maybe Barnabas, um, decides at the very end, okay, now, now there are some things I want you to do. And it really is very naturally based on what we have just read, what we have just heard. 
I think it's good for us to recognize that, um, be very, very careful, because we all we do this. I mean, I want to end kind of just sharing a little bit on the, weirdly enough, a little bit on the marriage thing. I want to talk about that a little bit, because that's, that's one. I want, to, I want to share with you an article that convicted me that I didn't understand anymore what marriage was about. And that's kind of even embarrassing to say. I had bought into some really crazy ideas that I want to kind of share with you. Um, maybe I'll just confess to you, I had some wrong understanding about what marriage was all about. And so I'll be honest, um, uh, Andrew and I had built our marriage on some pretty unbiblical, maybe even anti-biblical ideas that I've been recently convicted of. But how it, we got there was instead of like God and his plan, we decided it, it was about us and our choices. And when that happens, in the end, it's like, so what do I benefit from hospitality? Like, how's that good for me? Tell me how that's good for me. Hey, how do I benefit from following my leaders? Because, I mean, honestly, I'm totally willing to follow leaders as long as they agree with me. Totally. Love it. I appreciate it. When leaders are helpful for me, love leaders. They are awesome. It's when I don't like the leaders that I decide I'm going to do my own thing. And that's, by the way, my right, because I have the freedom to choose. Go to another church. Go to another country. Do whatever you want to do. Right? So instead of actually submitting, this is a tough question for me to ask. I've, I've talked to the elders about this. Like, what does it look like? Because I'm one of. What does it look like for this mutual submission? How do we do this? Because I believe in it. If not, I can't. I don't know, I mean, one thing you may know about me, many of you know me and have known me for a long time, my apologies, but many of you have known me for a long time, like, I just don't do well not living out my understanding of what the scriptures are. Not that I do it perfectly all the time, but I just, I can't live in that context. I just feel like a weirdo, and I just feel like it's not true, and it, it eats me up. <laughs> it just eats me up. So when I look at these verses and it's talking about hospitality and it's talking about leaders, it's talking about a brotherly love that kind of literally what, 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 what Nancy did a good job in the first hour was just describing like these are all natural byproducts, natural consequences, right, of a life in Christ. Like they're just kind of like no-brainers. And so sometimes it's actually just good to let the text just... And, and you can even tell how it is. Isn't it sound more proverbial? Okay, it's jumping from topic to topic. It's not like this, lended, this, this lengthened extension of ideas, but it's like blah, blah, blah. Love your wife. Treat your... Feed your dog. It's just it's this listing of things that are kind of going on that we should just do, right? It's kind of like we shouldn't... I don't even know what else to tell you. Be hospitable. Like, tell me you don't know that. Like, love one another. Tell me you don't know that. Like, follow your leaders. Tell me you don't know that. It's kind of like how it's, it's, it's being said. And I think it's good for us in the context of a room where we have an opportunity to sit and reflect on, it'd be good for you to go back and, and look at the brotherly love that is found in Hebrews 1 through 12 to find what leadership means from 1 through 12, to find what, um, what marriage looks like in light of the cross, like, and making some of those connections is a really healthy way of finding the appropriate connections between what God has done and then how we should live. So all of a sudden, a statement like, we should forgive one another as God has forgiven us, just seems like the most natural, normal thing in the world. 
That's why I love to tell people, just tell me your plan is to like act like Jesus in this instance. And you can hold me to that. So what you're trying to do is act like Jesus here? That's what you're trying to do? Do you realize how many of the situations in our lives would somewhat dissolve, not totally, but would just somewhat at least find the right context? Now just make sure Jesus isn't a really angry temple cleaning guy all the time or some wussy um, on the other. I mean, it's not. It's like it's a really this incredible mixture. Jesus is so wide and so deep in, in the way that he deals with people and things. So don't just gravitate to the things that you like about Jesus. But the fullness of what we see in, in Hebrews 13 is found in the earlier chapters. We really want to challenge you to go back and even look at that. But let me just, let me just read even. You, you can just kind of, I don't know if you want to go there or not. You can decide what you want to do, you're grown-ups. I want you to turn to Colossians 4. And notice how um, Colossians is a twin, actually, to, to Ephesians but this is how the Apostle Paul ends this book to a church that he doesn't, he didn't establish it. It's close to Ephesus, right? Ephesus and Colossae are relatively close in proximity. Paul spent a lot of time, but when you read the beginning of Colossians, it's as I heard about your faith, I was excited. But then in verses, chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, he talks about how he just agonizes over how he can make them perfect in Christ. So even though he doesn't really know them, he's got this incredible burden for them. It'd be like me walking into a church in Perry going, oh, I just feel so burdened for your sanctification. They would look at me like, what? Tell me who you are again. The Apostle Paul says in verse 2 of chapter 4, Colossians, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. He's already kind of talked about husbands and wives, and he's already talked about kind of like he does in Ephesians 5 and 6. He does a similar thing, and then at the very end, it's like, oh, yeah, by the way, let me give you some quick thoughts. Those are good thoughts, aren't they? Aren't they good? It's like, yeah, Jim, you don't even need to explain it. Anything on here anybody not understand? It's like, no, it fits really well. Here's my favorite one, though. Turn here. This this actually is a lot like um, Hebrews 13. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 5. This one does sound like Hebrews. That's why i got to be very careful going. You know, Paul never does this. Yeah, he does. He does it quite a bit right here. One of his letters. So the final instructions begins in verse 12. Um, Chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, talks about the coming of the Lord, and the, that's where we get the idea of the, the, uh, the blowing of the trumpet, okay? And then he goes on in chapter 5 and says, you need to be prepared because it's going to come like a thief in the night. You will be prepared. Verse 11, he talks about, therefore, I want you to encourage one another with these words. And then in verse 12, he's about to wrap up this book. One of his first letters, by the way, Thessalonians, some argue maybe his second letter that he writes, Galatians being first and this one being second. All depends on how you kind of date them. He says this in verse 12, We ask you, brothers, 
to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Admonish is, again, the word that means to warn now so punishments later don't have to come, which is kind of the hard side of leadership, right? So I want you to, I want you to respect those who admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. I love that. I mean, if, if, any, if any respect is due a pastor, it is not because of them. It is because of their work. And by the way, you do know that applies to me, not just for me, right? It applies for me, like to me, so that I have to do this. So this is a universal thing. It causes all of us to stop and go, wow, these are people that have been called by God to be our shepherds. We need to. So I love that, that line. And then continues on, be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idol, which it's so interesting. I, I love watching you guys get all excited about loving the outcast and caring for those who are home and needing help. And yeah, that's so biblical. That's so biblical. And we also need to admonish the idol. Crickets. I've never heard any, I mean, in situations like this, I never hear anybody go, yeah, I got a lazy neighbor I think we need to go talk to. Which, which by the way, it's like our, it's our culture right now. Our culture right now is if you're a victim, love the, which, by the way, I'm, not, I'm saying is good. I'm, I'm, I'm proud that we get that. I really, I think we need to hear it. I didn't stand up and go, no, we don't. We got to stop doing that. It's amazing, though, how selective we are. Past generations have loved to yell at idle people and ignored the downtrodden. Our generation has decided, no, 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 no. We're all downtrodden. I'm downtrodden with good looks, brains, and a great wife. And if you guys could just sympathize with me, everybody's downtrodden. But it's interesting, Paul, and this is a big deal to the church in Thessalonica. It is, you know, you know the line, right? If a man does not work, neither let him. That's 2 Thessalonians. That's where we get that from, by the way. So you may not know that, but that's 2 Thessalonians 3. But he says here, I want you to, I want you to warn the idol. The word for idol is, is kind of, I just happen to know this because I taught this book when I was at the college. The idol is a, a word that is usually used to describe somebody that is um, uh, outside of the natural order of things. Which is complicated because that not that called to be an American? To kind of do your own thing? To blaze your own trail? Is that not the most American thing that there is? Right? To be free? To color outside the lines? Is that not just the most? It's a very unbiblical idea. The Bible preaches rather strongly the concepts of conformity. It does not fit very well in our culture. Does it? So un-American. But the word idle does not just mean like they're sitting at home. It means they're doing what they want to do. Like this is what I want to do. And, they're, and literally it means to, to be outside of the natural order or the, 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 the cultural order. The Bible looks very, uh, very, uh, very sternly against people that are trying to figure themselves out. The Bible actually goes in a very different direction, which I'm increasingly convinced that I'm messed up in my head because I grew up in a generation where that was like the highest ideal. 
And I'm beginning to realize as I watch my generation implode that maybe some of the seeds were, were in that mentality. So, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. So it's all of it, right? Like it's, it is, it's, it's, it is communion um, for those people who are in their home. It is, it's all of these things. It's, it's, it's the beauty that I love of the complexity of the gospel that is willing to confront everyone and that is willing to provide peace and comfort to everyone. Like, nobody escapes this. I, I, I say this often. Like, when I'm done preaching, if you come up and go, wow, you stepped on my toes, my response is almost always, well, I'm glad someone else feels it because I've been stepping on mine all week. And actually, a better way to describe it is God's been stepping on me all week. It just feels good when he does it, doesn't it? It really does. It feels good. Almost like, I don't know what book says this, almost like a father disciplining their child. Help the weak, be patient with them all. I love that reminder. Paul loves to say that. Be patient with them all. One of, my, one of the new le- lessons I've learned recently is a word that is found in, in uh, 1 Timothy where he's describing what an elder needs to be, and he's describing it of Timothy. And it, it is the idea, it's only used once in the Bible, but the idea is that, I, that you sit under this incredible pressure and difficulties and harassment and complaining and you never break because of love. Most people I know love the idea of getting to go off the handle because they've been misappreciated or unappreciated or something like that. And Paul says that one of the things he wants for Timothy is to to sit under that, to sit under that difficulty, trusting in the strength of the Holy Spirit and to not break and to be patient in that. It's, It's really been kind of a key word for me in the last, say, six or eight months. Can I do that? Should the time ever come where there's a tax and it's that difficulty? Can I sit like Christ? I mean, isn't this the picture of Christ? Accusations, mocking, spitting, ridicule. And doesn't he look just incredibly at peace? Is that not? what? Why? Why? Does he not trust God to vindicate him? Does he not trust God to raise him up? Is that not an incredible biblical picture? Go back and read the Psalms. What does David say? And you will, you will rescue me. And so that's what he's describing a little bit here. Be patient with them all. Look at verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. This is a great ending to a book. Verse 16, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. And I think this word then describes what he means by that. It's a very misunderstood verse. And do not despise prophecies, but test everything, every prophecy. Hold fast to the good prophecies. Abstain from every kind of evil prophecy. Do you see how that fits in context? Don't quench the spirit. Test it all. If it's a good prophecy, keep it. If it's a bad prophecy, have nothing to do with it. That's kind of what the context is describing. And then he ends with this. And now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. 
I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. So it's the same. doesn't that feel like Hebrews? Talks about leaders, talks about brotherly love, talks about all these things that need to happen. And man, it is just so nice to realize that the gospel, which is the good news of God in Jesus, okay? Not, not just salvation, but everything that Jesus brings then creeps into every aspect of our lives and molds and shapes us in some pretty profound ways. And therefore, I love to stop and to reflect on how can my life continue to exhibit a deeper resemblance of Christ's life? And so this may be a weird way. I don't even know if I want to say I want to end on this, but kind of end on this. But um, if, if you will just excuse me, um, on this, I, I would love to just kind of leave you a little bit, um, I don't know, in, in, in shock and awe in some level. I would say for one of a couple of reasons. Number one, what one of the reasons might be, I'm about to share with you that I have been uh, deceived into um, what marriage is all about and kind of how that works. And I was just, I've already shared with you that's what I want to kind of end with. Um, and I, I really, the more that I begin to think about it, I, I don't think it was um, this, the Supreme Court justices that made this decision about same-sex marriage. I don't know how, how many of you, when you heard about that, hold marriage in high esteem in that verse, you kind of thought about the, what's going on right now in America with marriage. How many of you thought about that? Raise your hand. Okay, so you too. Um, and I love to blame the justices, right? But actually, the more that I looked at it, the more that I realized it was probably more my fault than theirs. Because I had actually um, done some things that maybe the justices did as well, but I decided to maybe not look at marriage the way that God looked at marriage. So this is what I did that kind of makes it a bit of a mess. I had taken marriage and I had made it about these particular things. Love. And choice. Which, by the way, is just another word for Jim. And the bad news is, I know this will shock you, but Andrea did the same thing. That's that sure that hurt? Yeah, no, I, I get that, Nancy. But literally, here's, here's kind of what I thought about marriage, what I thought marriage was like, Something where um, I would grow up and I would just find a woman that I love and then I would, like, love her and then we could kind of build our lives around each other. That's what I kind of thought. And I, I, I even, the weird part was I called it biblical. And then the more that I began to look at that with the help of a gentleman by the name of Alistair Roberts, the more that I began to realize that this can be a really, really dangerous way to look at marriage. And, the, and the, here was the scary part, was I had no idea. I mean, I've been married like 20-some years. Some of you are right now looking at me like I'm crazy. Can I, do you mind if I just read to you a little bit? Anybody mind? I usually don't do this. Let me read to you. And I'll, I'll, I'm not even trying to pretend it's mine. It's not. It's written by a gentleman by the name of Alistair Roberts, the title of it. I'll, I'll give you, I'll, I'll even send you a link or whatever. The title of the much longer article is called Before, Before Obergefell. A Burgerfell is the name of the decision, by the way, the Supreme Court decision. A Burgerfell Hodge, so like Roe v. Wade, it's a, it's a Burgerfell versus Hodges. 
is the name of the decision. But here's what he says. The character of marriage has changed under many influences. Medical, technological, and economic influences have been among the most powerful of these. Contraceptive medications and other contraceptive devices coupled with greater access to abortion have facilitated the growing detachment of sex from procreation. There are many consequences of this development as sex in all of its standard forms is now sterile by default. It has become homogenized. The only criteria for sex, he's just describing here now, are these two things. Number one, consent. And number two, pleasure. What is sex about? Number one, consent. There better be consensual. If it is not consensual, then it's bad. And, it, and, it's, and sex is for what? For pleasure. It's, it's not to make babies. Because why? Because technologically and medically, we have taken what would, we would consider to be the natural byproduct of sex, and we have now removed it. I didn't even know this was going on, by the way. Didn't even know this was happening to us. Listen to how this continues. Any categorical distinction between same-sex relations and those between a man and a woman will now appear very artificial as a result. Because what is sex about? And we didn't even know this was happening. I mean, sorry, me. I didn't even know this was happening. So why does it become very artificial? Because if, if the two basic ideas I understand about sex are about consent and pleasure, then who does it matter who's having it? Sex is sex, the use of the body for erogenous stimulation and possibly thereby as a means of expressing emotional intimacy. When sex is regarded in such a manner, it appears very gender neutral. If you want to know why our young people are going, I don't understand the big deal about same-sex stuff. Why? Consent and pleasure. I don't understand the big deal. It's a gender, it's, it, by definition, then it becomes a gender-neutral idea. Responsible sex ceases to be sex that occurs within a marital context. If I say to you, responsible sex, how many of you think procreation? Anybody else? I do now. That's what happens. Responsible sex, safe sex, means no babies, and it means no STDs. That's not a biblical view, by the way. He says this, Responsible sex ceases to be sex that occurs within a marital context, where a vow of lifelong fidelity now provides the context of welcome and support for a new life. Rather, responsible sex is safe sex, sex that precludes procreation, sex that is, in fact, consequence-free. No longer perceived, as, uh, perceived of as the responsible context for sexual relations, marriage gradually becomes a mere lifestyle choice rather than a set of governing cultural norms. That was Jim and Andrea. Let me say that again. It becomes a mere lifestyle choice. I chose to be married. Rather than a set of governing cultural norms. Which, when we say that, we mean the Bible, right? The Bible sets the standards. As such a set of cultural norms, marriage places restrictions and expectations upon both of the married parties, as well as unmarried people. Not only does it call for lifelong sexual exclusivity, 
and fidelity of married couples. It also calls for abstinence outside of marriage for those who are unmarried and generally orients them, therefore, towards marriage. The natural procreative potential of sexual relations is now mistakenly cast as if it were a choice. The place of children in marriage has now changed their choice. So not only did I marry Andrea by choice because I loved her, but guess what else we decided? When do you want to have kids? Well, first of all, number one, do we even want to have kids? Well, yeah, we want to have kids. They're so cute. How many are we going to have? And why are we going to have them? Self-actualization. Where did this, how did this happen? Like, how, how did I get that? I, I didn't read Exodus and get that. I didn't read Genesis and get that. It's almost like happening all around me. And I, I'm not even realizing, like, the water rising. I'm not even realizing, or the temperature changing. I'm not even realizing it. Listen to this. When sexual relations are normally sterile, however, the sexual union of marriage comes to be regarded as if it were fundamentally only about the expression of personal intimacy between spouses rather than an entrance into a relation of shared openness to children, the procreative potential being integral to the nature of the union. Choice is what he keeps going off and on about. This makes it difficult for people to recognize the essential difference between marital relations between a husband and a wife and the sort of marital relations between same-sex couples. Also, when children are chiefly regarded in terms of choice, now I don't know about you, but I'm just going to confess, Andrea and I, it was a lot about choice. How many, and I don't know about you, I don't think my mom, and I would ask my mom and dad, when did you decide to have kids? And they were like, what are you talking about? Right? That was people in the 50s and in the 40s and in the 50s, right? It was just, we have kids. We have kids. But Jim and Andrea sat down, well, when do you want? Well, we need to spend time together first to get, to, to get along as a couple. And then we're going to decide, and are we done having kids? We had that conversation. Are we done having kids? Well, yeah, and you know why? Because our lifestyle. You know, it's a financial burden. Anybody else do this? It's a financial burden. If it's not you, it's not everybody else. He says this. So now all of a sudden, there is very little difference between a same-sex couple and an a opposite-sex couple. Also, when children are chief regard, regarded as a terms of choice, the use of surrogacy, donated gametes, and reproductive technology becomes so normalized that it is no longer uh, regarded as a significant departure. As a result of the notion of marriage, that marriage is a, uh, a bond that is steadily, uh, it steadily becomes more ordered around the interest of adult couples. Marriage is a vowed union. Are you ready to this? Marriage is a vowed union of two persons who share a loving relationship. But as the default form of sex is sterile, so the procreative end of marriage is quite dispensable to the institution. If the procreative end of marriage is dispensable, then the shape of marriage should primarily be determined by what the marriage partners want, which I get all the time. I just don't know if I want to stay married. Well, the good news is, this is what Andrew and Jim based it on. <laughs> so if that changes, then it's easier to step out. And so he says, so then you shouldn't be surprised that there then becomes the liberalization of divorce laws regarding their children as choices. The father and the mother can now be assured that provided they both continue to love their children, they can safely go their separate ways. 
Also, if a child's personalizing bond to their parents is primary established by choice, no significant conceptual distinction can be made between children born through donated surrogacy or obtained through adoption or children born through something else. Great suffering has occurred on the altar of this cultural conceit, not the least the killing of countless unborn children who had the misfortune of being among those unchosen. Never heard that word before and it just hit me. Children are the natural extensions and icons of their parents' union, and that union cannot be dissolved without doing children harm and threatening their identity. When choice becomes the grounding principle of marriage, marriages are much more vulnerable to divorce. When the continuation of marriage ceases to be desired, there is less a sense of duty to preserve it. There will also be less willingness to bring children into a union that is increasingly susceptible to dissolution. I actually had someone say to me, I was going to get a tattoo with my spouse's name on it, but then I realized that tattoos are permanent. The family is now often closer to a privatized and sentimental environment for independent careerists who share similar patterns of consumption. That is one of the most brilliant lines I've read in years. Let me say it again. The family is now often closer to a privatized and sentimental environment for independent careerists who share similar patterns of consumption. That is true. I mean, I see that in me, though. That's the part that scares me about all of this is I'm not ripping on anybody but Jim and Andrea right now. I'm trying to climb outside of this. Marriages become hedonistic, so just looking for their own pleasure, in character oriented around activities and products that married couple wish to enjoy together. This hedonic version of marriage boldly declared in the lavish excess of the modern wedding is a lifestyle of luxury that actually the poor are usually priced out of. Individual choice and autonomy are dominant and foundational cultural values in a capitalist society. So this is the next big one. He's going to go after capitalism. Eclipsing almost everything else, the liberal notion of the person as androgynous, trans, as an androgynous transacting party and consumer that constitutes the heart of the... Okay, this gets a little deep here, but... That constitutes the anthropology of capitalism has no real conceptual place for the lasting natural union between the sexes or between parents or the children they bear. Essentially this. America, the company, does a whole lot better if you're disconnected from one another and you're disconnected from your kids. It's just good for business. You know what's amazing? I remember thinking about, it's hard for us to find a children's minister, especially like a female one, because as soon as her husband has a new job, he's going to, oh man, we got to figure out a way to get people to love their job more than their marriage. In the church, because marriages really get in the way of business. You know that, right? How many of you have had an argument over business in your marriage? <laughs> So that's, that's the bigger part of this. Listen to this. The gender-neutralizing notions of liberal personhood, so not just liberals, but liberal personhood, informs various movements, among them forms of feminism that seek to form an egalitarian. We're all equal. So for those of you that want equality between the sexes, interesting. That seek to form an egalitarian society where all differences are reduced to the level of indifference. 
Therefore, the sexual difference between husbands and wives, between mothers and fathers, now is irrelevant. Any two loving parents are interchangeable. Sex, meaning your gender, should not even be included in it. The values of egalitarianism, where all equal and individual choice, have been integral to the movement toward same-sex marriage. These values of equality, individual choice, the pursuit of pleasure, self-expression, the values of liberal capitalism are sacred. And any threat to them will be treated with heresy. Few can be, even begin to understand why any person might call these values into question. How can you call, like, my personal choice, my personal love, my, the pursuit of my career? I remember watching an episode of Psych. You guys remember the TV show, Psych? It's a TV show. The Psych guy, the white, the white Psych guy, not the black Psych guy, but the white Psych guy, his mom left him when he was really, really young. And he always resented it. The dad was the good guy. The mom was the bad person. And then they, they have an episode. I didn't even watch a lot of it, but I remember watching this episode. The mom finally comes in, and the son's really, really mad, and she explains, but you don't understand. I had a really good opportunity for a job in New York that I just had to take. And you know what the son's response was? I didn't know. Now it all makes sense. And I'm looking at this going, that's what we kind of believe, isn't it? How do you get, I mean, if she had to do that, like, it's her, like it was a really good opportunity. How do you say no to a really good opportunity just because of a marriage and kids? That is, that is what's going on. I think you know this. It's going on inside of her. So this, the values of equality, individual choice, the pursuit of pleasure, and self-expression. You can't even call these things into question. Marriage, as it is the function for these proponents of same-sex marriage, is now regarded more as a form of expressive lifestyle choice for individuals rather than a vocation, meaning a job, and a set of cultural norms imposed upon them. So when Paul says or the Hebrew writer says, I want you to hold the ideas of marriage. Whose ideas? God's. Any set of cultural norms that marriage might impose upon prospective spouse or upon the society more broadly are resisted. Marriage must be pure choice, not something that expects anything of people. Society and its public square must be purged of all values beyond those of individual choice, self-realization, and expression. All policied by the harm principle, meaning I could be harmed. I didn't fully express myself because I stayed in my marriage. I was deeply harmed. That's how it works, right? A society publicly maintaining marriage as a sacred union between husband and wife, open to the bearing of children, contravenes this ideology. As a quasi-religious entity, it seems to have no rights to be treated this way. Liberal capitalism markets its foundational ideology to the consuming masses, nourishing from them its own teats. Marriage is just one of the self-defining choices that capitalism will now hold out to us, increasingly presented as like it's a consumer good. Have you seen the TV shows? Rather than a demanding vocation within a community. It should not be surprising that so many large corporations have jumped onto the gender-neutral marriage bandwagon. How many of you are going, why is Disney? Why is Google? Why are they doing this? You want to know why they're doing this? Because gender-neutral marriages are good for business. 
Firmly situating corporations on the progressive right side of history, it is a vindication of liberal capitalism's social ideology. The robustness of the neutral of the natural family will now present a sort of friction at the speed of capitalism. Because my marriage and my kids get in my way, don't they? As this recent article now contends, same-sex marriages are supposedly superior to marriages between a man and a woman because sexual differences don't get in the way of the satisfaction of individual choice and desire. They are also superior because they are more likely to be egalitarian. I never realized that. That, that scared me. Within same-sex same marriage is, oh, by the way, it'll always be safe sex provided that STTs are avoided. Having children is always a choice, absolutely detached from the act of sexual relations. General neutral marriage is also a marriage made congruent with the ends and values of liberal capitalism, removing sexual difference, procreative relations, and their vocational correlate, correlates from the picture. We can all better function as interchangeable consumers and careerists. And then here's his final word, which convicted me. That somehow the counterfeit of same-sex marriage now passes for marriage, which it does in so many people's minds, within our society, is actually an indictment upon all that we have allowed this to happen under our watch. And I read this article, I had to realize that it really wasn't a decision that was made by a bunch of Supreme Court justices. I wish it were that simple. But a lot of the things that they're looking at are things that I had already bought into. That was humbling. Incredibly humbling when I'm going, wait a second, like they're describing Andrea and Jim. And but by the grace of God, we could have gone down some pretty broken roads. So therefore, think about just the complexities of what it actually means. And how many of you want because you're going to have to kind of read that article again if you want. I don't know how to get it. I can, I'll send you the link, Nancy. I'll send you the link. It, it goes in, weirdly enough, it goes in a lot deeper. I had to read it a number of times. Um, it's, he's a guy that I follow. Alistair Roberts is a, a gentleman writing on some really interesting cultural norms. He does a great job. Just, you know, he's very gracious. I love listening to him speak because he is so mild. He's so kind. And honestly, I can usually sense that something is profoundly true when it convicts me deeply of my own sin. Uh, I think he is a pastor within the Church of England. Mm -hmm, British. Yeah, Alistair Roberts. But here's what, I want you to, here's what I want you to think, is that as much as it is easy for you, like how many of you, when you first hear that statement, hold the marriage bed pure and lift up marriage, how many of you are going, I'm doing that? And then I'll read something like this and go, wow, the, the Bible actually says a whole lot more about it. And I began to realize, like, I was more um, influenced by my culture. These two things, by the way, have been introduced. Not that there was no love in marriage, but as the basis for these two things are less than 200 years old. It's a new phenomenon, marriage based on choice and love. For the majority of history, marriage has been based on other things, like the Bible. And this is where it gets truly complicated. Then we wonder, well, why is it such a mess? And the beauty that I just want to end you with, because I know that that can be heavy, 
But that the book of Hebrews then does give us the answer to this, which is what? The, the pictures of Christ. The examples of Christ. And I really want to challenge you that as you begin to think about all these different avenues about what it means to be hospitable or what it means to trust leaders, there may be some things in your life that you have believed that are not as biblical as you think. And therefore, it's okay. Let's go back to the Bible. Understand that truth. Trust that truth. Live out that truth. And trust God to be the one. I, I read the book of Hebrews. I don't know. If you, did you read it and wonder, why didn't these guys get it? I'm that way a little bit. How did they miss it? And then I, I read this, and it's just probably one of many articles that I could read. And it likes to remind me, hey, dude, you're in your cultural confusion as well. And we need to hear where we have also strayed. Let's pray. God, thank you for this book. Thank you for um, Nancy and for Brenda. Thank you for everyone in this class that deeply desires to love and honor you. And so, God, I thank you for uh, the way that your word speaks to us, even better than Alistair speaks to us. Your word speaks to us. All Alistair was able to do in this one small issue of marriage was to point out that that I had made something as beautiful as marriage out to be about me. Sadly enough, I think the same thing is true about our uh, religion. The one thing that we can't do that with and still be true is you and Jesus. We, We truly, we can't. I mean, when we do, we distort it, but... Therefore, I thank you for Jesus and what he's accomplished. I thank you for the better priest that he is. I thank you for the better way that he has provided. And I thank you, God, for not modifying it, but having that ultimately as the end in which you've always intended. And from that, Father, may we learn how to live out our lives as a natural consequence of your goodness to us that you've shown in Christ. We thank you so much for him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.